Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 57, Biblical Figures in Islam, part six, Solomon, part one. Solomon was wise. We know this. Jews know it. Christians know it. Muslims know it. Solomon the wise is his most common title. And he certainly was wise, at least for a decent part of his life. But if you take into account the Islamic stories of Solomon, I think a more appropriate title would be maybe Solomon the Interesting or Solomon the Great. Um, if you're not familiar with the Islamic Solomon, you need to prepare for some actually fascinating stuff you have never heard before about this character. Solomon was a prophet and a king and all that, but the Islamic version commanded an army of jinn, invisible spirits who were both soldiers and construction workers and pearl divers. Solomon talked to ants, seriously. He talked to birds. He commanded the wind and converted the, the, the queen of Sheba to Islam. And really, his powers were similar to those from the stories of the pagan gods that came before him. But these powers were granted by the Islamic god, the god, Allah. The Islamic Solomon, Sulaiman in Arabic, has an unusually large number of stories attached to him in the Middle East, even outside of the Jewish community. I think there were just a ton of stories about Solomon floating around the desert in the 7th century, or by the 7th century, and many of them just made it into the Quran. And they're certainly not what we find in the Bible, but they're much more than just interesting stories. And I'll certainly tell these stories, although stories is a bit generous. It's more like short anecdotes about Solomon. But like I said, there's a purpose here far beyond just a story, far beyond entertainment. Because these stories, they build an archetype of the ideal king, the ideal ruler, the ideal person who has power and uses it responsibly and uses that power for God. The Islamic Solomon is certainly wise, but in the Islamic version, that's not really his prime attribute. The Islamic Solomon is best described as wise, of course, but a very specific kind of wise, someone who is responsible, trustworthy, a man worthy of power, someone who learns quickly from his mistakes, and who isn't necessarily wise because he is infallible, but wise because he learns very quickly from his mistakes and can really kind of think on his feet. There really isn't a single English word that sums up all those qualities, but Solomon is a man who was given many powers or power over things because Solomon could be trusted to use it wisely. God doesn't just hand over armies of jinn to just anyone. You know, it needs to be someone who's not going to abuse that power. And not only not abuse it, but use it positively, to use it for God in the way God intends, and to do so wisely. Again, there's no word in English to describe that exactly, but there are plenty of stories out there about men who use power as God would like them to use it. You know, in the Islamic context, 
Muhammad is an obvious example of this. Um, and the wise exercise of earthly power is always going to be a bigger theme in Islam than Christianity. If you look at the two founders of the two religions, you know, Jesus and Muhammad, you know, for example, look at how they treated enemies or look at the martyrdom style that would come after them. It's just going to be different. Jesus and Paul had wildly different attitudes toward power than Muhammad and Ali did. Christianity is just going to bend a bit more toward existentialism, toward the transcendence, the, even the trivialization of the events of this world, of the things of this world, and particularly of the material things of this world. That includes the institutions of the world and the politics of the world, the wealth of this world for sure. That's the Christian view usually, but prophet kings, on the other hand, which are kind of the Islamic archetype, you know, that Muhammad would follow, they manage a ton of money, among other things. The archetype of the righteous ruler, the prophet king, it's important in Islam for obvious reasons. And one of those archetypes is certainly the Islamic Solomon. Now, Solomon, David's son, he is a great and wise king. Actually, there is an Islamic story of the two of them together. So we may as well start there. This one isn't really in any authoritative sources, at least that I've found. It's more of an apocryphal story in the Islamic tradition, but I consider it an Islamic story. Although the word apocryphal, maybe that's not quite fair. Uh, maybe background story would be more accurate to describe this. Because the Quran actually references this story, but does not tell it. Uh, it's referenced in Surah 21, verse 78. And so the quick reference means that it was probably a Solomon story that everyone in the area already knew. And so the Quran didn't think it was worth retelling to this particular audience. It was just using it as an example. So most commentators fill in the story uh, to help make sense of what the Quran is talking about, especially 1,400 years in the future, and non-Arabs have no idea. But as for the origin of the story, I'm not exactly sure where it came from. But anyway, the story sets up Solomon's intellect and instinct for problem-solving. This is a really good story, particularly if you think of it in terms of the common good rather than simple crime and punishment. So here's the story. Two men come before King David, and Solomon is around as well. Now, one of these men owns a sheep. The other owns a field of grapes. The man who owned the sheep was careless and let his sheep wander off and eat the other man's entire field, the whole thing. So sheep guy has destroyed the livelihood of grape guy. So King David tells the sheep guy to exchange his sheep for the barren grape field, you know, to make them trade. Or alternately, sometimes I think just give grape guy his sheep for restitution. But Solomon objects. He has a better idea. 
have the sheep guy give his sheep to the grape guy so he can at least use it for wool and milk and whatever else is in this, whatever it is that sheep provide. <laughs> and then have the sheep guy cultivate the grape field until it regrows. And if it does regrow, the two can trade back and things will be back to the way they were before the sheep ate the entire grape field. Now, this is the kind of story you have to read a few times, but once it clicks, you see the value in this. It's a template for just decision-making of trying to restore the pre-injury situation as best as you can. So here, David is just thinking on a lower level than his son, really. He's looking for simple justice rather than something deeper, something far more practical. And David isn't wrong here. You know, he's not an idiot. It is the sheep guy's fault that he wasn't paying any attention and his sheep ate. What, what's the singular of sheep? Sheep. Yeah, I think one sheep. Okay, we're talking about a single sheep. Sounds weird. So this sheep ate an entire field of grapes. Now, I don't know much about either sheep or grape fields, but I imagine this process took a very long time. So we're talking about gross negligence. And this is clearly some kind of negligence, at least. And that should be discouraged, obviously. But the fact is, it has happened. It's done. So now what? On the surface... Yeah, maybe the sheep should be the civil penalty for that kind of carelessness. But long term, what does the field guy want with his sheep? He's not a shepherd or a herder. He's a farmer. Farming is where his expertise lies. So you can actually see an ancient preview of more modern specialized economics here. Because it benefits everyone when people can specialize and more efficiently utilize their talents. The painter will do better if someone else makes the paint. You know, programmers would be in short supply if they made their own microchips. Just imagine trying to build anything complex if you had to do every single step yourself. We would all live in log cabins at best because it is just inefficient to wedge people into places their talents are ill-suited. And it appears at some level, Solomon gets this. He knows this. It benefits everyone to have the sheep guy shepherding and the grape guy farming. Each will produce a greater yield in their area of specialization, which benefits not only the two of them, but everyone else as well. So, like in the Bible, Solomon is being set up as a wise man here, as a thinking man's thinker, the Marcus Aurelius of Israel. Or, as the Quran puts it, this is 3820, we made his kingdom strong and gave him wisdom and decisive speech. So Solomon was not just wise, but he was quick on his feet. Solomon is not wise because he is perfect, as I said before. 
Solomon is wise because he quickly learns from his mistakes, or in the previous case, learning immediately from David's mistake. Here's another example of Solomon learning quickly, and this one is from the Hadith. This has some adult themes, so you may want to stop here if there are kids around, or just skip ahead maybe a minute or two. The prophet said, meaning Muhammad, Solomon, the son of King David, said, Tonight I will sleep with 70 ladies, each of whom will conceive a child, who will be a knight fighting for Allah's cause. Now Solomon's companion said, If Allah will, in Arabic, inshallah. But Solomon did not say this. Therefore, none of those women got pregnant except one, and that one gave birth to a half-child. So the prophet, meaning Muhammad, further said, If the prophet Solomon had said, inshallah, he would have begotten children who would, who would have fought in Allah's cause. Shu'aib and Ibn Abi Az-Zinad said, 90 women is more correct than 70. So just disputing the number here. So you see this with other numbers, you know, like 90 or 100, but really the number isn't important, just that it's large. You get the point here. Solomon had more bedroom options than anyone I can think of at all. But the point, again, is not the women, or that he shouldn't be with 70 women in a night. That seems like a lesson, but that's not the lesson here. The point is that he did not say God willing or inshallah, which you may notice I say at the end of every episode, means God willing. It's what you say when you talk about the future, because you are not the master of the future. God is the master of the future. And this is a point of emphasis in Islam, submitting to the will of God, which certainly includes God's will for the future. You know, if you will something, but God doesn't will it, really, it's better that it doesn't happen for everyone included, because God's way is better than your way. And like I said, that's a point of emphasis in Islam, but really it's at the core of pretty much any religion, particularly Western Abrahamic ones. It's extremely important to recognize God's sovereignty, and especially so when you're trying to do something impossible such as impregnating 70 women in one night. That takes divine intervention. For the men listening, just be honest with yourself. Even in your prime, when you could think of nothing else, the nightly cap is probably somewhere between 2 and 5, and that's still nowhere near 70, which again, I think, is the point. You know, it's best to say, inshallah, if you want one child. And even more important, if you're looking for 70. So Solomon has many worldly things. Wealth, wives, all that. And he's particularly fond of horses as well. But as he grew in wisdom, Solomon was always careful not to worship any of the many gifts he was given to see the creation as a reflection of God, and even to see spiritual value in these creations, of course. But 
always keeping the proper context. This is from the uh, Quran, Surah 38, verses 30 to 33. This is the Mustafa Kitab translation. Uh, this is an example of what I'm talking about uh, using horses. It says, And we blessed David with Solomon. What an excellent servant he was. Indeed, he constantly turned to Allah. Remember when the well-trained, swift horses were paraded before him in the evening. He then proclaimed, I am truly in love with these fine things out of remembrance for Allah, until they went out of sight. He ordered, Bring them back to me. Then he began to rub down their legs and necks. So the moral of the story you may have seen missed there is that God is still at the forefront, even with these horses. He says, I am truly in love with these fine things out of remembrance for Allah. That's the important part. Um, there are some funny other apocryphal versions of this that some dispute. For example, one version of this story uh, has Solomon watching these horses until the sun set. And then he realized that he had missed the noon prayer because he loved these horses so much. So he killed them, striking at their legs and necks. But this is generally disputed. The point here is that the horses are tools. They are created beings. And no matter how beautiful something is, it is so crucial to remember, and especially for a king to remember, that God's beautiful creation should never be confused with the creator of it. No matter how beautiful the person, or the animal, or the picture, or the building, these things may be beautiful and can be appreciated, but they can't be worshipped. In our world, for example, the computer that I'm looking at right now may be amazing, and you can marvel at it, but don't forget who created it. And I don't mean the people who made the casing and the processor and wrote the code. You have to go beyond that to the single point of origin for everything. These tools, even ones that seem so advanced to us, they still come from God. And Solomon knew that. In our time, some similar things would be things like the microchip, uh, harnessing the atom, traveling to space, amazing stuff. Now, these things are not the glory of man. They are the glory of God. If you see a human as the creator, you are not looking deep enough. Reverence for God's creation can be part of loving God, of course but always in the proper context and not for vanity and idolatry. Horses, going back to the example, like humans, they just make poor objects of worship. This is why, as the story implies, he stopped his adoration of the horses for his nightly prayer, his devotion to something far more beautiful than a horse. That would be Allah the creator of the universe. So Solomon understood and appreciated what he was given. 
And because of this, God just kept on piling up the blessings. Solomon was given dominion over the wind. And that would have been a giant gift in the Mediterranean world, uh, much more so than it would have been in Mecca. Because the wind quite literally brought riches to Solomon's kingdom. The sailboats coming to port with the world's bounty. Now, this isn't stated explicitly in the Quran that this is what it's referring to. It's speaking more of the wind generally. But the bounty of trade ships is a pretty good guess. Uh, this is in Surah 21, verses 81 to 82, if you want to look at it. Also, Surah 34, verse 12. So, perhaps it's referencing merchant ships. Either that, or also possible a navy that was protecting Israel. Although you hear almost nothing in ancient Israel about naval warfare, depending on the size of the kingdom we're talking about here, a naval presence in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea would seem pretty important. Or maybe not, but the wind probably refers to command of the sea in some way, like an Israeli navy, I believe was mentioned in the book of Kings in the Bible. It's not a crazy thought. Or perhaps it's just a note, you know, that Solomon was wise enough to harness, wise enough to harness the basic elements of the earth, as in earth, wind, and fire. Solomon commanded the wind and the fire. Fire meaning the jinn, the invisible beings who have fire as a base element. The jinn did all the hard work that would have been difficult for humans, like deep diving for valuables at the bottom of the sea, which is a fun visual, really, because there's nothing about how it's safe for a fire-based creature to go under the water, so you really just have to use your imagination there. And these jinn did heavy construction, the kind of thing we use giant machines to do now, cutting stones, making and setting arches, digging out great foundations and reservoirs, just things that would take thousands of men. So Solomon had a giant force of enslaved jinn, an army of conscript labor. The exact parameters of their enslavement aren't really given, but the idea is just that there's a lot of them, ton of jinn. And a lot of these jinn are evil or not so good jinn, you know, evil jinn that are ordered by God to work for Solomon. So here we have Solomon, who is making good tools from bad material here, using bad jinn in the way of God. And jinn make great workers. Because first off, they can't get hurt. And you can keep them completely off the books. You know, the government doesn't keep track of invisible spirits. Their work would make it appear as if God himself had been constructing things. They even managed to build what sounds like a fountain with molten brass instead of water. And the jinn were soldiers too. It's pretty obvious why that would be helpful. And what was also helpful is that these jinn were not particularly bright, uh, which in many ways in that context, makes them ideal workers. There's an old American folk song. It's called 16 Tons. 
and it's about a coal miner. Now, 16 tons was basically the daily quota for this kind of backbreaking labor. We're talking about 100 years ago. Now, the opening lyrics to this folk song, they go, go like this. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. So in other words, the bosses wanted men who are strong and stupid. The theme of the song is about how unfair labor standards were at the time, which was an era of being paid in company script and shopping at company stores, which was actually really hovering pretty close to slavery for some, which was just like the jinn performing all these tasks for Solomon. He had basically enslaved these jinn. Not basically, he did enslave these jinn. And that's why this Islamic story of Solomon and the jinn always makes me think of that song. If you want to hear it, just search for 16 tons. It's the most popular version is by Tennessee Ernie Ford. May or may not be public domain by now. And the reference, you know, to man, meaning people people being made out of mud is clearly from the Bible, but it works just as well with Islam. You know, the Bible and Quran do seem to pretty much agree on the base element of humans, clay, mud, dirt, whatever. A key theme in both the story and the song is the irony that these physically powerful beings are somehow powerless and being used by those without their level of physical power. And this is being done using some other kind of power. And you see that element in the song, you know, to be, it's from the perspective of someone who is actually quite powerful, but doesn't really realize it. Someone with large muscles and a feeble brain. If these workers knew their power, the situation would be very different. Again, just like Solomon's gin. That same theme in the Islamic context is illustrated in the story of Solomon's death. Now, the jinn were just so blind, so unable to see clearly, that they worked for Solomon even after he had died. They just didn't know that he had died. Seriously, this is in the Quran, I believe, uh, Surah 34, verse 14. The jinn are busy building what is, presumably, Solomon's temple. And while they're doing this, Solomon dies, but he dies leaning on his staff. So he's dead, but he's still upright. So all the jinn assume he's still alive, and because of this, they keep working. And for a long time, too. Now, eventually, some insect or group of insects or termites, uh, Marmaduke Pickthall uses the word creepy crawlers in his English translation. Whatever it is, these bugs manage to eat through Solomon's staff, causing him to finally collapse. And only then the jinn realize at that point, oh, our master is dead. 
Now, this is presented as a lesson to mortals who cannot see the unseen, because only God sees the unseen. Now, if these jinn had known what God had known, or even what the termites knew, because they were inside the staff, they would not have still been in slavery. And it's not hard to make a modern parallel here. You know, if we saw what God saw, just in a very broad context, beyond labor, just apply it to everything. If we saw what God saw, would we continue to toil in many of the ways that we do? So those bugs actually communicated Solomon's final message long after he had been dead. Now, I should note here that Solomon commanded plenty of other animals and insects, but that will have to wait for next time. This is kind of running long. That's when I'll tell the stories of the Islamic Solomon more familiar to biblical readers, such as the Queen of Sheba, and of course, the story that has the ants in it, because there actually is a story in the Quran named after Solomon's ants. We'll get to that. And there's also Solomon's famous story of offering to cut the baby in two. And Islam's version is slightly modified. So we'll get to that next. So thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.